It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Well, there's a new political debate sweeping across Twitter, which, as we know, is a perfect reflection of the real world. And it's whether or not Joe Biden should be spending weekends in Delaware. Seriously. Now, this stems from a couple of lines in a Maureen Dowd column, pretty critical of the Biden presidency, over the weekend in which he said he's so lost in the snows of yesteryear that he's continuing his Amtrak Joe nearly every weekend commute to Delaware, albeit with better wheels, meaning uh, instead of being on the train, he's on Marine One. So a whole bunch of people beating up on anybody who retweets this. Heaven forbid the man want to be with his family on the weekend. Surely he should instead spend his time, one person wrote, at his private properties and hotels, running up government tabs at the facilities from which he personally benefits financially. Okay, little comparison there to Donald Trump. Now look, my position on this is very simple. I don't care where presidents spend weekends. I don't care where they go on vacation. I don't care how many days they go on vacation. I think it's always a phony issue ginned up by opponents of that president because you're always the commander-in-chief. You always have to be in touch and on top of the job. And look, if it makes Joe Biden and Jill Biden happy to be in their familiar confines of their home in Delaware rather than kind of prisoners in the White House, fine. The thing that I do think is salient is it's not that he's in Delaware, but that you basically don't hear from him on the weekends. He just shuts down. You know, as you know, the canned statements he makes on Twitter, not that I'm necessarily saying he should be Trumpian on Twitter, uh, but, you know, no press releases. There's none of this, like, you know, the White House doesn't release photographs showing him hard at work. A lot of that was smoke and mirrors. Going back to Eisenhower, you know, Eisenhower would take these golfing vacations and his press secretary would save up these announcements so it would look like Ike was working. But given that Biden is 79 and doesn't project a forceful image of a guy who's working around the clock, I do think that in a kind of a subtle way undermines it. But I don't care if he does it in Delaware. I don't care if he goes to some, you know, friend's house on Martha's Vineyard. I just care about what he does and what the results are. I think that's pretty reasonable. Hey, one thing about this, you know, horrible uh, hostage-taking episode at the uh, Congregation Beth Israel in the suburb of Fort Worth, uh, where fortunately everybody got out alive and the government was killed. When I originally read this, I assumed it was the law enforcement team that got into the shootout and saved the hostages. But the hostages had already saved themselves. The rabbi there, his name is Charlie Citron Walker, he's been kind of hailed as a hero because, you know, here's a gunman and who's getting increasingly desperate sounding. And they came up with a plan led by the rabbi in which as they were fairly close to the door, the rabbi threw a chair at the gunman. The hostages ran for the door and they all got out. That's when, you know, the uh, hostage rescue team came in. And uh, according to interviews the rabbi has done, uh, it was years of security training prompted by threats to synagogues that allowed them to escape. Now, in one way, that's a very sad state of affairs that, you know, and I say this about churches or mosques, you know, that they have to practice security drills uh, because of these threats and, and past incidents. On the other hand, what a mir- miracle that they did and were able to defuse the situation. And by the way, now the FBI says, of course, this was motivated by anti-Semitism, whatever law enforcement officials said that had nothing to do with the fact that it was a synagogue, you know, ought to go 
be sent off to some sort of re-education camp. All right, I got a lot to cover here, so let's go to number one. Uh, I got a, I saw an email from Donald Trump uh, late yesterday, you know, and I get this constant flow and it's, you know, attacking rivals, attacking media people. We'll get to that in a second. This one was just, hey, I've just spent millions of dollars beefing up my Trump uh, national Doral golf course in Miami. It's really great now. You ought to check it out. We're going to try to build some luxury housing there. It's just, you know, it's Donald Trump, the businessman. And it, it says, you know, office of the 45th president. And I get it. And I click on it. And it's just about, you know, here, here, here's a, a great place to play golf. So yesterday, which, of course, uh, was a federal holiday, Martin Luther King Day, uh, what did Donald Trump do? Well, he spent some time going after his antagonists at MSNBC. I have a column about this, uh, in part about this, and also about uh, Joe Biden's slide in the polls. So here's a, what some of what the former president had to say. And again, this you know goes out to every reporter who was on every list. Will Morning Joe be canceled? He and Mika's ratings are very low. They're having an extremely hard time finding an audience to listen to the fake news they spurn. I guess he meant spew, not sperm, because sperm would mean they didn't adopt it. Um, so uh, Scarborough loved this. He, you know, of course, they see it in real time uh, during the program. And Scarborough says, he can't quit us. You know, these are former friends who have been at war, now rhetorical war, for a very long time. And, you know, going back to when Trump turned on Joe and Mika and said that Mika tried to get into a party at Mar-a-Lago, but she was bleeding from a facelift, and he said no way. I mean, all of which was just, uh, let's just say, not what you want to see from a president. So the program put up this banner headline, you know, what we call a Chiron, saying, Morning Joe thanks faithful viewer, Florida retiree sends thoughts on show. You know, because there's this whole kabuki dance when Trump was president. Was like, I, I don't watch that crap anymore, never. But then, you know, there'd be some segment that obviously he did watch or was told about or saw it on his TiVo, and then he would pop off about it. But the other one was even more serious. He went after Joy Reid, a 7 p.m. Uh, host on MSNBC. And I've had a lot of differences with Joy Reid, and I think she does... Um, play the race card a lot, not that she's not entitled to her views, but Trump really says, looks like Unjoy Reed, the racist commentator on MSDNC, is toast. Her stupidity is only surpassed by her ap absolute lack of television persona. Um, okay, you know what? The reason I bring this up, because I shouldn't just give him the free platform to take these shots, but it's part of what he does. And um, you know, in both cases, he's saying, oh, their ratings are down, you know, because they don't have Trump to kick around anymore. But actually, almost everybody in cable news has their ratings down because the Trump era was more exciting to cover than the Biden era. It's just a simple fact. I mean, CNN is down even more dramatically than MSNBC. And one of the reasons that people, uh, commentators, hosts, uh, anti-Trumpers, never-Trumpers, never-were-Trumpers, on those networks keep beating up on him and keep talking, you know, every hour by January 6th is because they're trying to get the numbers back up. They're trying to recapture some of the old magic. Um, and so in the column today, I write about uh, Dan Pfeiffer, former Obama White House communications director, saying, you know what, it's lucky for Trump he's not on Twitter or Facebook 
because if his constant attacks on the media and his grievances, and now he's pissed off at Ron DeSantis, uh, you know, he goes after Mitch McConnell, calls him an old crow. If that was reaching 88 million Twitter followers, it would remind people, says Pfeiffer, partisan Democrat, you know, what they don't like about Donald Trump. And instead, the impact is minimized because, you know, I may talk about it or might get a little bit of cable traction and it might get some online traction. Basically, you know, Trump's direct connection with his 88 million Twitter followers has been severed by the man. Now, is Twitter going to keep this ban if he's the nominee in 2024? I mean, wouldn't that be horribly unfair? Same for Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, you name it. Uh, also uh, in the Trump world news, I don't want to make too much of this, but Laura Ingram, you know, Fox primetime host, uh, big Trump supporter, spoke at his 2016 convention. This is before she was a full-time Fox person. She gave an interview to Northern Virginia Magazine in which she said, and here's the headline, Laura Ingram might not vote for Trump if he runs, but she's not going to stop talking to his base. I wouldn't expect this scoop to be in Northern Virginia Magazine, but there it is. Uh, And here's what Laura Ingram says. I'm not saying I'm there for him yet. But I think whether he runs or not, I mean, his policies worked. Trump's blueprint for uh, policy, a forward-looking, optimistic set of pro-America policies, that blueprint, without a doubt, is winning. So it's an interesting little warning shot, I guess you could say, that Laura Ingram is is fired, saying, you know, look, I really like Donald Trump's policies. I now have reservations about him running again. Remember, she was among the Fox News opinion hosts who sent the text on January 6th to Mark Meadows saying you got to get him to stop this. Um, doesn't mean, look, it'll all depend on what the situation is three years from now, who else is running, whatever. But it's just interesting. Uh, and Coulter, who is, you know, conservative firebrand, who is just completely and totally in for Trump, totally on the issue, or I should say primarily on the issue of immigration, and then famously broke with him and has been heaping abuse on him ever since, wrote an email to the New York Times saying, Trump is done. You guys should stop obsessing over him. Um, I don't know. On what planet is Trump done? He's the absolute leader of the Republican Party. He is going to have a big impact on the midterms. He is trying to knock out Republicans who uh, voted for impeachment or who refused to embrace the stolen election narrative. Um, and if he wants the 2024 nomination, it's probably his, you know, barring any health problems or something like that. So, and Coulter may be done with Trump, but I don't think Trump is done with politics. Uh, oh, an interesting story in CNN, which probably amounts to nothing, but on a symbolic level, about three dozen former Trump administration officials, people who work for the guy, got disillusioned, started to criticize him. They um, had a conference call yesterday to talk about how they could go after him in the future, I guess. Um, and there's a lot of familiar names on there that you often see on MS or CNN. Uh, Alyssa Farah, who uh, now works for CNN, she was Mike Pence's communications director, Scaramucci, the mooch, um, also now works for CNBC or, you know, as a commentator. Um, Olivia Troy, another former Pence aide. Uh, Chris Krebs, who was a security guy. Miles Taylor, who wrote the famous or infamous anonymous column, hyped by the New York Times as a senior administration official. But also John Kelly, you know, General Kelly, White House chief of staff, who's kind of laid low. Um, he told CNN... 
that he was only able to monitor about 10 minutes of the call, which lasted an hour. I, I don't know if this ends up meaning anything, but, you know, if you have people who were in the Trump inner circle who are now out, of course, he'll attack them mercilessly. Um, it's just worth noting. Don't go anywhere. More BuzzMeter coming your way in just a moment. All right, let's move on to number two. I didn't really get into this last week because I don't. I think it's just negotiating tactics. But the Republican National Committee has sent a letter saying, hey, Commission on Presidential Debates, uh, we may not participate at all in 2024. Uh, the RNC wants a whole bunch of changes to the debate format. And they're basically the kind of changes that the, that the commission is never going to go along with. Uh, you know, the view of Trump, certainly, and many Republicans, is that they can't get moderators who are going to be fair. Although, 2020, I mean, Trump complained about Chris Wallace, but it was mostly about Wallace interrupting. And it was Trump who did all the interrupting of both Wallace and of um, Joe Biden. Uh, and then the only other debate was moderated by Kristen Welker, and Donald Trump said she did a fair job. Um, so the question is, do they only, did they want to have approval of who gets to be the moderator? And would they want anybody who's not a Trump cheerleader? Well, you know, the commission's not going to stand for this. Remember, if people don't remember the history, the debate, it was kind of a patchwork. The League of Women Voters sponsored it for a while. And finally, both parties got together in the 80s, the DNC and the RNC, and said, let's form this commission. It'll be bipartisan. There'll be people from both, uh, um, party committees on it, and we'll try to run it in a professional manner. But, you know, these days, um, the RNC is basically, you know, a pro-Trump organization. He didn't like the media. He didn't like the debates. Um, some people think, you know, the debates did not help him in 2020. So it's, it could well be that complaining about process and moderation picks is a way to ultimately duck the debates. Now, it's often the case that the front runner doesn't want to debate. So if Donald Trump is behind in 2024, you could bet a lot of money that he will find a way to debate. If Donald Trump happens to be ahead in 2024, it's possible he might not. Uh, here's an interesting quote uh, in Politico has this piece. Uh, Jeff Rowe, uh, who worked for Ted Cruz's presidential campaign, says the days of playing ball with the insider media moguls is over. Okay, so how... Politico says few Republicans expect the debates will not occur in some form in 2024. Uh, but maybe the campaigns have to negotiate directly. I don't know. It could just end up being a big, fat mess. You know, there have been presidential debates. The number has varied. Last time it was only two. Uh, and that was in part because COVID knocked out the middle debate. We never, never got rescheduled. Uh, but there have been presidential debates televised debates in every campaign since 1976. I remember writing, when I was a newspaper reporter in New Jersey, I remember writing a lead kind of previewing the Jimmy Carter-Jerry Ford debate in 76, saying this was the first time in 16 years, because what happened is the first presidential debate famously was 1960, Jack Kennedy, Richard Nixon. Nixon thought he, the debates contributed to his loss of the presidential race in 60. So um, 64, for whatever reason, LBJ and Goldwater didn't debate. And then in 68, Nixon had no interest in debating. And in 72, when he ran for re-election, President Nixon had no interest in debating. So it wasn't until 16 years later, 1976. But after that, although sometimes there's been only a single debate, as there was in 1980, 
uh, between Jimmy Carter uh, and Ronald Reagan, which probably swung the election, or at least uh, cemented Reagan's landslide win that year. Every presidential candidate, I mean, leaving aside all the primary debates, when the fall election have felt compelled to participate because the public expects it. You know, and by the way, all this maneuvering, you know, the reason that you have debates is not to make the media feel good or not to make the candidates feel good. It's to let, even even if they're scripted and the formats are too tightly constricted to let them go at each other in a way that we might like, it's still standing up there for an hour and a half answering questions and responding to the other person. I was going to say guy, but uh, Hillary Clinton in 2016 means I can no longer say guy. And if Kamala Harris is on the ticket, she'll have the VP debate. So it actually is a public service, imperfect as they may be. And I personally doubt there'll be no debates in 2024, but that's the state of play right now. All right, number three, Anthony Fauci. A National Review editorial says it's time for Fauci to go. Now, I think Fauci is kind of, has made mistakes to be sure. But he's kind of a scapegoat. He's just despised by the right. So I'm not surprised to see this editorial in National Review. Um, but if you think about it, a lot of the heat that might be coming President Biden's way as the Omicron variant surges and as um, the vaccination program has stalled and all of that um, is kind of absorbed by Fauci. He's kind of the heat shield here. So... Basically, NR is calling on Biden to fire Fauci as his chief medical advisor and as the head of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. It's past time for public health policy to shift to acknowledging that COVID-19 is an endemic disease, a risk for individuals to manage for the most part. Fauci stands in the way of executing that shift and communicating it to the public. His own behavior, says National Review, has undermined public trust in response to the pandemic, by, by sitting for celebrity profiles and documentaries, by stifling public debate about the origins of COVID-19, by responding in lawyerly and evasive fashion to questions about NIH research, uh, supporting work at the Wuhan lab. These are all reasons. And it also brings up that, that really uh, nasty uh, exchange Exchanges with Senator Rand Paul last week in his nasty spats with Paul and other office holders, he hasn't simply parried criticisms, but tried to land political blows himself. Yes, he did. He does. He's under attack, and he fights back. Uh, National Review goes on to say, it's always been bizarre that the head of an obscure agency has soaked up so much media attention. Over the past two years, Fauci has done so many interviews with so many outlets, from Sunday shows to obscure podcasts, that one wonders how he had time for his day job. Uh, even the most shameless media hogs might blush at Fauci's interview schedule. I would take the other side and say, look, he's out there answering questions if he's the chief policymaker. But, you know, a lot of this reflects President Biden's approach to the job. Biden doesn't go to the COVID briefings the way Trump did. Biden gives speeches about COVID. Sometimes he takes questions. He's having a news conference tomorrow, not just about COVID, obviously. And I think that's long overdue. First one in about two and a half months, I believe. Um, but how does the appearance of Fauci on the cover of InStyle magazine, sitting by the pool in sunglasses, declaring, with all due modesty, I think I'm pretty effective, advance public health? Okay, you know, you can make a case that Fauci's made mistakes. You can make a case that he does too much media. Um, 
National Review acknowledges he's been the subject of unfair attacks and deranged threats uh, and conspiracy theories. He's argu- he arguably played a valuable role in the early stages of the pandemic when many Americans found him a comforting voice. He was an experienced doctor, served every president since Reagan. When President Trump was inconstant or inattentive or seemed to wish away the crisis, Fauci presented a sober, reassuring confidence. But that was a long time ago, so National Review wants him out. Do I see any prospect of that happening? happening? I do not. Not in the foreseeable future. Um, meanwhile, Fauci was talking in some panel yesterday. Oh, a, a virtual panel for Davos. For Davos, excuse me. Um, should we reach the point where... Will we reach the point where Omicron... Uh, is, uh, you know, in effect, creates immunity for much of the population. It's an open question, Fauci said. Uh, I would hope that's the case, but that would only be the case if we don't get another variant that eludes the immune response of the prior variant. Uh, And even so, he says, COVID-19 would remain as an endemic. Better than what we have now. But meanwhile, uh, Washington Post has a piece about these at-home tests, you know, that everyone's scrambling for and how they're sometimes not that accurate. They may be less sensitive. These, they're rapid tests. You know, you do it at home, you get the results in 15 minutes. They're not these PCR tests, which are deemed to be more accurate, but they're also much more expensive. You know, the PCR test could cost $150 or more without insurance coverage. Um, these other rapid tests, they're starting to be mailed, made available to be free. Even when they're not free, they're not that expensive. But it has some uh, examples of... Um, people who got a negative, and it turned out they really were positive, but they used the negative test to go off and, and be with family, expose other people, and so there is raising this doubt. Um, if these tests are not that accurate, you know, is it just making life uh, decisions more difficult? And, you know, look, I've used these at-home tests, and a lot of people have used them. I think they're mostly accurate, but they're certainly not 100%. Uh, another COVID footnote, General Mark Milley, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff has COVID-19. So he's in charge of the entire military, and can, which can obviously provide him with physical security, but not security against this disease. Fortunately, his symptoms are reported to be mild. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. All right, number four. Chuck Schumer and the Senate Democrats are going to press ahead this week with a vote on the voting rights bills that Biden wants, the Democratic bills. I don't know. They're obviously going to lose. So what's the point? They're going to take this up today, combining the two bills, the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, putting them into an unrelated measure which allows them, it's like a procedural move to get them to the floor. Um, And yet, they don't have the votes. And the reason they don't have the votes are named Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin. Joe Manchin. Uh, uh, New York Times says, well, the strategy will allow, still allow Republicans to block a final vote by invoking the filibuster. Chuck Schumer wants to forge ahead anyway. I, I guess what he wants to do is to get all the Republicans on record declaring their opposition so the Democrats can use this as a campaign issue. Uh, okay, I guess that makes sense, but it also is advertising Democratic weakness because the reason they don't have the votes in a 50-50 Senate is they can't get all 50 senators. And they were never going to get all 50 senators because to pass voting rights, unlike the $2 trillion spending bill, where you could 
there's a way to use, you know, the reconciliation where you only need one party's votes. They can't even get that because they couldn't make a deal with Manchin and Cinema. And I partially blame Biden for that. He could have cut some kind of deal. Um, but here, you got the filibuster, and it's just this, you know, on the one hand, yeah, it gets everybody on record. On the other hand, it says the Democrats can't even get all their members on board. Meanwhile, the Washington Post has a piece about the liberal wing of the Democratic Party and how back in 2020, uh, it was sort of at the height of its influence and they thought they were going to beat Trump and they were going to do everything that they've been waiting to do for a generation. Uh, National health care, not just Obamacare. Uh, Doubling the minimum wage, canceling student debt, overhauling immigration, major new social uh, and economic programs and education programs. And yet, that's not happening. You know, Biden's basically gotten through what he's going to get through. Long gone, says the piece, are the days when Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders sparred across Iowa and New Hampshire over whose policy platform was more transformative. Now, they don't have that kind of clout. It's Mansion and Cinema who have that kind of clout. The ossification of Biden's legislative agenda underscores the long-term structural challenges facing the party's left flank, highlighting how difficult it will be to enact liberal policy changes, even with Democrat in control of Congress. And, you know, after November, uh, the odds are overwhelming they're not going to be in control of the House. Maybe they luck out and keep the Senate, but even so, you know, you got one House in Republican hands, all this stuff that they want to do, they won't be able to do. And that's the reason they tried to do everything. You know, they knew they had like an 18-month window. So let's get pre-kindergarten and climate change and more money and child tax credit. And I'm not saying all of these are bad ideas. But instead of like breaking them up into things that maybe they could get all 50 Senate Democrats to swallow, they went huge. You know, $2 trillion on top of the $2 trillion pandemic relief bill, on top of the $1 trillion infrastructure bipartisan bill. Remember, the entire federal budget is only $6 trillion. And Biden ultimately wanted to spend that. And, you know, he got pulled to the left. The party went really left. And Biden, who always kind of tries to find something in the center, I mean, going back to the days when he was a senator and he was uh, had serious reservations about busing, but he got pulled to the left because the party center of gravity went to the left, and that has now blown up on him. And so this is kind of, it's almost like a political obit for the AOC, Bernie, Elizabeth, progressive squad wing of the Democratic Party, recognizing that all these great things they were going to do they're not going to be able to do most of them. They may not be able to do another thing. All right, number five. I said yesterday I wasn't going to leave with sports, so I'll just put it at the end here. Uh, now that uh, Novak Djokovic has been uh, deported from Australia, he's got a new problem, the French Open. Uh, the French are in the po- pro- uh, process of passing a law. It's already passed the lower house of the legislature, overwhelmingly, I should add. Uh, to have a vaccine pass that will exclude unvaccinated people, this is what some Democrats want to do here, from restaurants, sports arenas, and other venues. It will apply to everybody over the age of 16. It will take effect shortly. I guess it's on track to pass. That put Djokovic's participation in the French Open in doubt. Here's um, a legislator, a lawmaker, in France, saying Djokovic's behavior was irresponsible. Australia is a sovereign country, which makes the rules. Rules should be restricted. Uh, we can't have two weights and two measures regarding the COVID pass. If you are called Joko, Nadal, or Mr. Whoever, you respect the rules. 
So I, I get that Djokovic gets to make his own decision about vaccination. But what if he just said, you know what, I have a great career here. I have a few more years to try to break the Grand Slam record. I'll just get the shots. He would have played in the Australian Open right now. Would he have won? I don't know, but he's won it in the past. He would be playing in the French Open, no problem. He, he might or might not have gotten COVID in December. But instead, he, you know, I've gone on and on and how about badly he mishandled it, and then he got COVID, and then he traveled anyway, and then he lied about it. But now he may end up not playing in two of the four Grand Slam titles, uh, Grand Slam um, tournaments. But so, so we need something else to obsess about because, you know, the interest in the Australian Open is just plummet. So the New York Times has a piece on Naomi Osaka because it was at last year's French Open that she didn't want to do the press conference, that she got into a fight with French authorities, that she pulled out, that she told the world about her mental health problems. And she was off for quite a while. Then she came back in the Olympics uh, and carried the torch, but got knocked out. Then she came back in the U.S. Open and lost in an early round to somebody who was, you know, ranked number 53 or something like that. And now she's going to play in the French Open. And here's what she says. Naomi Osaka says there was a time after the French Open, the last one, where I felt like everyone was judging me. It feels a, uh, a bit weird when you go into a stadium to play and you're kind of concerned what everyone's gaze means. And the question that the Times piece raises is, here she's gone public with her years-long battle with depression, took two months off, returned to the Tokyo Olympics, uh, and she's under all this pressure. Uh, Naomi says, I actually really thought I wasn't going to play for most of this year. I was kind of feeling like I didn't know what my future was going to be. I'm pretty sure a lot of people can relate to that. So the question is, you know, can she get it back? This is a woman who one year ago was on top of the world, highest paid female athlete in any sport. And then came the French Open and she wouldn't talk to reporters. And maybe that was almost a proxy for her depression and why and how she felt spooked by the French Open. But now she's going to come back. She will become the storyline. I mean, if Djokovic manages to play, maybe he'll become the storyline for the men. For the women, it will be Naomi Osaka. Look, I hope she can get it together. She is a really appealing young athlete, tremendously talented who ultimately, you know, had to take some time off. And, I, get, I, you know, I always thought she should have just done the press conference, but I give her credit for speaking so uh, openly and candidly about her mental health issues. These are things athletes never used to talk about. And now it seems at times like it's the only thing we talk about. All right, really appreciate your listening. Uh, our podcast, our modest little podcast is growing, and that means that more people are tuning in. You can subscribe here at lots of places, including Apple iTunes. Have a great day. See you here tomorrow with more BuzzBeat. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. 